The following podcast may contain graphic content and details that some listeners may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Digital Forensics in Real Life. I'm your host, Kim Bradley. Today, we're bringing you a different type of crime than what we've explored on the podcast before. This is a fraud case with tens of thousands of victims and millions of dollars in damages from a criminal using automated tools to rip people off at scale. This case involves manhunts in the real and digital worlds, a ton of digital evidence, and a pretty hilarious arrest. Our guest today is Keith Swanson, a digital forensics investigator with 22 years of experience in law enforcement and a long career in the private sector as both an adjunct professor teaching digital forensics and an incident response manager in the corporate world. With that, here's Keith to tell us about the case. Hi, Keith. How are you? Not too bad. How are you doing, Kim? Doing great. Thanks for joining me today. Not a problem. So we're going to get into a case that you've worked, but tell me where you were working or what your job was when you worked this case. I was a computer crimes detective and forensic examiner for one of our local agencies here in the Phoenix metro area. And what year was this? Oh, God. <laughs> Let me look at my plaques. <laughs> this was around 2007. So tell me how you became aware of this case. We were with the agency that received a lot of the IC3 complaints, where you you go to the FBI's IC3 site and you file a complaint. You tell people where the, you think the suspect is, and we kept getting these complaints in over and over and over again. And then even some of our local people were filing reports for, uh, you know, they were getting ripped off on eBay, and it was always you know five, six bucks, nine bucks, ten bucks, twenty bucks, really small numbers. We started to, to look at these cases and we started to collate them and, and go, wait a minute, you know, where's the commonality here? Um, and I had worked with eBay in a couple of cases and, and contacted eBay and they put me in touch with their security people and fraud people. Um, so we started to work on this just because of the sheer volume of what was going on. Tell me a bit about the IC3 complaints. Tell me how that works and exactly what that is. So when you get ripped off online, the FBI has what they call the IC3, the Internet Crime Complaint Center. And it is a clearinghouse for you to file. It's not really filing a report, but you're filing, hey, I got ripped off or this happened on the Internet. And it's so prevalent that it's very difficult to, you know, you can't get every one of these cases. But what the FBI does and what we do in law enforcement is we look at these, we go, okay, here's a whole bunch of these things and there's a commonality to them. Now that we can work on it, you know, because a lot of times people are anonymous on the Internet and it's hard to dig all this stuff up and all this stuff down. So that's what IC3 does. And as you know, being in law enforcement, we always tell people, hey, listen, file an IC3 complaint because that goes to the FBI. They have big data computers and data analysis and they can look through all these things for these commonalities that you can use to maybe, wait a minute, there's a suspect over here that we can go get versus chasing every single case in the umpteen trillions of them out there. So what were some commonalities or some markers that you saw with this case? The person was always looking for check uh, for checks, not for PayPal, because he, he wouldn't accept PayPal. And we'll talk about why later. And all the checks were getting sent to the same PO box in the uh, right in the area of the local agency I worked for. So that's where we went, aha, there we go. And that was our starting point. All right. So you, you see that somebody's getting these checks and you decide what, what's your first step that you're going to do? Well, my first step was to get with eBay and work my way to get to the right people at eBay so we can get the data from them also. 
And lo and behold, they have been tracking this exact individual on their platforms also. So they had some ideas. Um, we ended up working very well together. Um, they would feed me information as what they knew from their platforms. Obviously, we would get subpoenas and all the legal documents that they that are needed. And we would take that information and, and collate it as far as how many victims did we have, how many of this, that, everything else, um, and you know, get all the background of the case. One of the things about internet criminals is you got to try to get in front of them. They're easy to go and disappear. So you got to get in front of them. So you don't want to just go running out the door and slam, you know, kick down a door with a search warrant and get this going. You got to plan it together. You have to make sure you have your case and it's a prosecutable case. That's the other kicker is, you know, a lot of times, you, you know, the case, there's not a really a law that covers it. Um, and so we had spoken to the attorney's general's office here in the Phoenix metro area. And they were like, yeah, this, this looks great. Let, let's keep working this case. So we tried to keep that rolling um, as we went forward and gathering all the evidence we could, finding out the scope of the case. That's the really hard part because this thing just went boom, 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 boom. It just started to, started to expand uh, the more that we dug into it. So as you are, are looking into this, you've um, kind of got to get your ducks in a row, right, then? Yes, you've got yes, to make sure that you get a plan of attack, sort of, in terms of this case so that you're not doing things too quickly or scaring even the bad guy off because then you may have nothing. Exactly. Exactly. They may disappear. And, you know, and part of that, too, is, okay, what evidence do I need to find on this suspect to tie him to this stuff? That plays back into the forensics role. Because we, we were like, okay, what can he do anti-forensic rise? How can we counter that? We had to get prepared. Uh, and the one thing that drives me insane when I was in law enforcement is a bad guy getting off on a technicality. I don't like that. <laughs> so I don't, in my cases, I worked very, very hard to make sure that that didn't happen. Right. So this um, suspect is going on doing, continuing to do this illegal activity while you're working your portion of it, trying to get everything worked out. Tell me some of the things that you're doing, if you can. So in the background, you know, obviously we're collecting all the data we can uh, that may be related to this individual and any, you know, historical data, just, to, you know, because you never know how long a fraud suspect's been ripping somebody off. And if we go back in time and I can say, hey, listen, this guy started ripping people off in 2000. And here's a big giant list of everybody he's ripped off. And he kept doing it up until the time we arrested him. You know, that means a heck of a lot more when I go in front of a jury or a judge in a trial and they go, whoa, you know, this guy's prolific. People look at fraud differently than they do, um, you know, fraud and white collar crimes differently than they do a violent crime. I mean, it's like somebody beats somebody up. You show them a picture of somebody getting beat up. Oh, my God, that's horrible. But you don't see that in a fraud case. And that's why it's super important with white-collar crimes and fraud cases to have your historical data ready to go so you can show just how many people has this person ripped off. And that's, that's a big thing in not only charging the case, because in some states, and it, you know, depending on the volume of victims, it may kick it up to, from a felony six to a felony two. I mean, felony ones are always, that's the murders. That's where the bad guys, really, really violent guys are. But you can get higher sentencing and stuff like that. And that's the other portion. When you come into a sentencing se session on this thing, you know, typically white collar crime, you get a slap on the wrist and don't do it no more, right? Well, if you come in and you can show the victim impact of what this person has done, and then that really can help in sentencing also. That's why 
whenever you're working any cases, especially in online cases with fraud, you have to have all of your facts together. And in some cases here, you know, you know, letting him, letting him continue to run while we're monitoring and watching him, you know, that's just giving him rope, just giving him rope until we just we yank that rope back and we snag him. So when you get your data back from eBay and you're, you're working with them and, and they're, you know, that he was already on their radar as well. So you're able to put this together with what you've already got. So I'm guessing you're doing a lot of comparison in terms of what you know and what they know. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, that's that's the key. What do we, they, they're the ones committing the crime, so they know exactly what their scam is. And we've got to try to reverse engineer that scam. And, you know, we wanted to make sure that we had every avenue covered with what we could. Um, you know, and, and these are the things where, you know, trying to get a wiretap on somebody's data line is unbelievably difficult. Um, and, you know, and it, it's, it, it's not impossible and it's being done. But back when this case was, you know, this was new stuff uh, to some, some judges. So we have to do some, you know, pretty, pretty creative things. So as you're uh, looking through this data, trying to figure out, you know, how many people he's actually ripped off and you're, you know what you have gotten from IC3 and from that information, but then also you now have some information from eBay and what they've been tracking. So now you're able to put some things together and is this... Is this one of those situations where uh, maybe they were changing their identity or their username, or they are they trying to hide? Always, always trying to hide and trying to not make sure that they can get past uh, eBay and PayPal and their controls. In this case here, we also interviewed some victims that filed some complaints that were local, and we found out that this individual was going on Match.com, you know, the dating website and meeting ladies and dating them for a little bit of time and saying, "Hey, you want to be a, a silent partner in eBay business?" Well, yeah, because now he can use their credentials to hide himself. Did he meet these women in person? Oh, yeah. They went on dates. How involved were the ladies in the scam? Did he pay them? Very rarely they got any money from it. You know, they, and he would leave them with bills. Like he had, uh, he left one lady with a bunch of bills from stamps.com for stuff that he actually had and shipped that was legit at the start. Because he would do that. He would actually ship some stuff at the beginning of, of each account. But then he just never had anything else to ship. And she got stuck with a bunch of bills from that. eBay didn't go after any of the ladies. They said, you know, hey, you know, not you. We understand. And left them alone. In order to, pro to prosecute somebody, you have to prove a, what's called a culpable mental state. So in fraud, you have to knowingly be doing something that you know is fraudulent. And these ladies had no clue that, they, that what they were involved in was fraudulent. So there's no culpable mental state, so they can't be charged. But, yeah, they very not... I can only think of maybe one or two that got any cash on the whole deal. So I went undercover on Match.com as a very attractive blonde, and as you can see, I'm not a very attractive blonde. <laughs> so it was it got it got pretty funny because um, while I was working this this angle of the case, um, there was a very attractive brunette lady that was after him too, and I found out that that was a Secret Service agent. Oh, yes. So. Was he speaking to you all? Was yes, he taking he was the bait? To a, he, was, he was taking the bait. He was speaking to us. And that helped us confirm exactly who the identity is. And that can tie him into the fact that he's using the, the story that our victim told us is true. You know, they're, they're not lying. This is what happened. And it was it was funny because once we found out, the Secret Service agent and I found out we were both working him, okay, now we have the service involved too. Um, and we have those resources at hand. 
Right. So now you've got some federal resources then, you know, maybe even, you know, some federal charges, whereas before you worked for a local agency and that may have been state charges, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, with the volume of what we are doing here, you know, the Secret Service does, uh, they do fraud investigations. A lot of people think, oh, they're just uh, counterfeiting. But no, they do fraud and they get into some stuff because it's treasury related. And uh, that's, and it, that that added another little twist to this case that was a lot of fun. So he's wanting only to get checks, like paper checks that somebody yes. writes to him. Yep. Mailed, old-fashioned mail. Because anything he did at, at PayPal, they was they were on to, and they would they would just shut off if they saw anything that even smelled of him, they would just shut off that account. So they he would you know he would not accept PayPal or any of these other electronic payment types. And back then we didn't have Venmo, we didn't have Zelle, we didn't have all this good stuff. So then he would request that they send a check or a money order uh, to uh, to this PO box, and that's ultimately how we confirmed identity on the individual. So when he's working with these people that he meets on Match dot com, mm-hmm. and he's trying to do some. Um, I guess, manipulation of them uh, in order to be able to use their credentials or their identity, right? Mm -hmm. So he's trying to sort of uh, start clean or start fresh or or just have some more credentials that he can use. Yeah, you know, just more credentials that he can use to set up new accounts because other accounts would get so many complaints and they would get shut off. Then he would come in with somebody new. That one would get shut off. Then he'd come in somebody because he never delivered any of the products ever. In fact, he didn't have them. So what did he say he was selling? He would sell things like uh, uh, poster prints, um, you know, cards, baseball cards, stuff like this, little tiny one-off things, right? And uh, he didn't have any of them, and he would never intended to send them because he didn't have them. Right. So about how much per transaction? You know, did it vary in how much yeah, transaction? It varied between, you know, like five, six bucks up to 20 bucks. But the thing is, with internet crime, and this came from him when I got my hands on him and interviewed him. He said, internet crime is not about ripping off one person for a million bucks. It's about ripping off a million people for a buck. Because now you can do things by volume. And that's what he was after. He had some automated listing tools that would go and list all this stuff for him. He was doing up to upwards of 35,000 listings a day, every day. Okay. So 35 listings a day. 35,000. Oh, my. 35,000 listings per day. Yes, ma'am. On average. And he's using some automated tools then to do this. Yeah, yeah a lot because, you know, there's a lot of tools out there for businesses to you know, list their stuff on eBay back then. And so this was this is like normal business activity. Like if I ran, say, a, a collectible shop, I would use this tool to, to list my stuff in mass. And that's what he was using with some of those tools. So you figure this out. You know where physically he is picking up these checks from. Yes, ma'am. You know that he has quite a few listings that have been out there. And now what are you going to do? After you do all that background information, you don't scare him off. You're ready to go, I guess, interview him, talk to him, see where he is. At this point, we're looking to put out, put bracelets on him. We're going we're gonna to hook him up. We're going to take him to jail. So we, so we, you know, we get a search warrant for his place. And uh, we get the team together to go over and execute the search warrant. So we go to the day that we're, we've got set to do this. We go to hit his house and, you know, it's the typical stuff. You knock on the door, you know, police department, we have a search warrant, open the door now. No one comes. One more knock. Police department, we have a search warrant. No one comes to the door. So we break the door down and there's nobody in the house and there's no computers anywhere. 
So in search warrants like this, when we first started working computer crimes, you know, we would check, we would watch the wireless networks, make sure that there's no kill switches coming that would come over. So we, you know, first thing I do is I run to the router and I disable the router and there's no computers anywhere in this house. Zip, nada. And he's nowhere to be found. So things got a little complicated. Is there any indication he's been there recently? Uh, yeah, it looks like he left in a heck of a hurry. I mean, cables are still ripped from the, the computers. The, the mice and keyboards are still there. He grabbed the, the hard drives and the computers and he ran. So he got tipped off. There's no doubt that he got tipped off at this point. So I'm a little cranked up about that. And I found out who tipped him off. Uh, there was an employee at the, at the uh, place where he was getting the checks that tipped him off that we had been in there. So that employee got hooked oh. up also, got arrested. All right. So he's not there. So what do you do? He's in the wind. We don't know where he's at. We don't know where he went. So now it's, now it's a manhunt, so to speak. And we start putting out feelers everywhere we can. Um, you know, we talk to, uh, he rents cars because he's got such bad credit. He can't get a loan for cars. So he rents cars. So we start serving and the secret service starts assisting us working contacts at the car rental places. And we find out where he's at the general area where he's at. Um, and I, not to give away too many secrets, but the car, the, the car company was able to use an onboard system to let us know he's in this area of town. Like real time? Yes, ma'am. We get this thing locked down to probably a one block area, but we just don't know exactly which house. So we're like, okay, we uh, you know go down there, we put the surveillance teams in place, including myself, and I'm probably the world's worst at surveillance. Um, too much ADD, I'm too much of a nerd. But we get down there and we, uh, we get a hold of this car company and the Secret Service is working with us and using their contacts. Um, and the car company was able to honk the horn on the car. And it's in a garage and now we have the house. So, you know, this, this is where it gets comical. We're in Phoenix, Arizona, you know, middle of the desert. It's like 8, 9, 10 p.m. at night. Um, and it starts raining and it's pouring. And the secret service agents see somebody run and they don't know if it's him. They don't know who it is. Cause you can't see your hand in front of your face. It's one of our torrential monsoon rains we get here. I'm in the back of the house, just making sure that nobody goes out the back door while I'm standing in a desert wash. Well, when it rains, the water comes rushing down these washes and it takes me out. <laughs> so now I'm in full tactical gear, trying not to get drowned, get out of this thing. I get to the top. We don't know where this guy went. Uh, I call Phoenix PD to see if they could send up their helicopter to assist. It's raining too hard for them to send a helicopter up. The winds are too strong. It's raining too hard. So now we're on our own trying to figure out where the hell did this guy go? So our surveillance teams are all over the place looking for this guy. Um, I, I, this is the best part. I make fun of my sergeant for this. My sergeant and, 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 and one of the other Secret Service agents, there's a grocery store down the way. They're searching the grocery store. They're going back and they see that the door to upstairs is open. So they run upstairs and then the door closes behind them and they get stuck on the roof. So oh, it no. was hilarious. In the meantime, while we're trying to hunt this guy down, I go and secure a search warrant for the house that we saw him run from. Um, because each individual place, you have to have a search warrant. So that takes a couple of hours. I get the search warrant. We go to the house to serve it. There's all the computers that were missing from his house and the hard drives. Everything's there. So I've got all the evidence. I just don't have him. So we still, still don't know where he went. He got, he got loose on us. 
Um, and it was it was hilarious. To this day, I'll never forget that night because it was one of the funniest things ever. I'm drowning. The Secret Service can't see this guy. My boss gets stuck in a roof. And how ironic is it that I live in Phoenix, Arizona metro area, and it's pouring rain when we go to hit this guy, you know, in the middle of the desert. So it was just one of those things the that chances. you just sit there. You just sit there and laugh. So now we, we grab yeah. all this stuff, we seize all this stuff, we bring it back to the labs, but he's out in the wind again. So we start putting our feelers back out there. And one of the things you do when you're looking for somebody is you let all the agencies know, hey, this is what I'm looking for. This is what, you know, his characteristics, this is what he likes to do. And we, you know, in the meantime, I'm doing all my forensic imaging, getting everything ready to get processed because we've got terabytes of stuff to go through here. And that's going to be difficult. So we're working on that. One of our patrol officers finds him, um, sees him going into a, a gym in North Scottsdale. So he gets a hold of me, and I'm like, awesome. So we, I, we set up a guy, and I said, listen, I've watched him a couple times, and, and this patrol officer's like, yeah, he comes in every morning at the same time without fail. It's like clockwork. I said, bingo. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. So we set up a team to go get him, and um, – it's me, a couple other sergeants, and, and my sergeant. My sergeant goes undercover at the gym, and we're waiting in a back room. And he comes in, he gets his stuff on, he goes, hits the treadmill. My sergeant gets on the treadmill next to him, and uh, he's got his cell phone on, and he, hits, he gives us just a, a tone that says, yep, that's him, come get him. And we go and we jump him, and we take him into custody right there on the spot. So whose house was this that he'd gone to? It was some old girlfriends who, who he, quite frankly, he ripped off. So Okay. So he's there. He runs. You all have a, a heck of a time that evening and then finally end up with him at a gym. You're able to arrest him. Yeah. And this is weeks later. You know, we're talking weeks. So we, it, it took a while to, get, to track him down. Wow. So finally, you know, and thank goodness that the, uh, the patrol officer was aware of the case and the situation and, and had an eye out for him. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I gave him a lot of kudos for, you know, for picking up on that and helping us out. Um, he ultimately became a, uh, a detective also. So after you're able to get the arrest, then you take him for an interview? Yes, ma'am. We took him down to interview. Uh, all he told me was what I told you about, you know, internet crime is not about ripping off one person for a million dollars. It's about ripping off a, a million for a buck. And then he lawyered right up and wouldn't talk to us. So... And a matter of fact, after I arrested him, the Secret Service agent that was working with me on it flew in from a protection detail in Los Angeles to meet him to talk to him. So he had done a few things we found out later to help hide his identity and stuff. We'll talk about those when we get to the forensics on it. But now he's in custody. We take care of all the paperwork to keep him in custody because obviously this guy's a flight risk. And the judge issues a pretty steep cash-only bond. Um, I, I, and typically the way that it works is you fill out the paperwork, you send it with the prisoner down to uh, initial appearance court, and the judge reads the paperwork and sets it from there. I walked this one through personally myself, and so did some attorneys from the attorney general's office. So we could talk to the judge right there on the spot and explain what a flight risk he truly was. So the judge keeps him in jail, which is good. Now, now he's in. Now it's forensics time. We've got to dig through these things. We've got you know, external hard drives all over the place. We've got like 10, 12 computers that we got to get done. All of them are Macs, you know, so there's a ton of work to get done here on the forensic side. So what did you do first? You said you'd made some forensic images. Absolutely. We imaged everything up. We took a look at the, the, the pure volume of what we had to do so we could start splitting it up in a logical way because you can't, there's no way to process 
I think we ended up like almost 15 terabytes of, of data that we had to process and, and dig through. Well, you know, this is back in the 2000s, late 2000s. We didn't have 64-bit computers, so you know, our computers were a little bit rougher. We still had decent tools, but we still had a ton of processing to do. So we split this thing up. I'm lead on it. The guys, the rest of my unit, you know, we're working this thing, and we just keep sharing information back and forth. And we're looking for, obviously, this is an online crime. So once we start processing, we're looking for the listings. Is there evidence of the listings? Or is there evidence of anti-forensics? Is he wiping things clean? Is he, you know, what, what is he doing? Um, I'm looking for evidence of the Match.com stuff, right? Because that's one of the ways that we got onto him. We're looking for emails. We're looking for instant messages. Anything like this that we can tie to the scam. The other thing is, is with a lot of, with most eBay listings, there's pictures of the items that they're going to be listed. So now we're looking for those also. And can you take those pictures and tie them into the listing, tie them to the accounts that, you know, the listings had to be tied to the accounts that eBay sent me that they knew about. And in some cases, we found accounts they didn't know about that we sent to them. So this takes some time to process this stuff to get it done. Um, you know, and obviously we're under a time crunch because now he's in custody. So we've got to get this done in a, in, a, in a pinch. So you're looking for everything that you can from, you know, volume shadow copies. We're looking into those. We're looking into internet histories. We're looking into unallocated space. He did delete a lot of the evidence, but he didn't wipe it. He didn't understand that part of it. He thought if it was deleted, it was gone. So we were able to, to carve a ton of this stuff out. Um, so we can put all this evidence together to support all the charges that were, gonna, that were being made on him. So compiling this, I'm assuming, I mean, obviously it was a huge task. About how long did that take you or did you have a team of folks helping? Yeah, I had the rest of my team helping me. And it took us almost a month to get this done, to get it done right. Um, and one of the things that's very difficult in cases like this is everybody wants to know what's going on, what's going on, what's going on. Can I get an update? Can I get an update? Can I get an update? Hey, we're not going to go off half cocked here. We have to make sure that the evidence that we're seeing is tied to the case. Stand by. We'll get this. And the attorneys were great. They understood. Um, they were they were attorneys that have you know dealt with crime like this in the past. So they they knew about it, that it was going to take some time. So, um, but you know, lieutenants and chiefs and you know they get nervous about this stuff. So, you know, we're going through it and we're tying you know evidence to accounts on eBay using eBay records to tie that account back. Yep, it existed. And we're, we're tying it to some of the victims that we interviewed, that he had used their stuff. And it left them, God, in some cases, he left them with bills, uh, like, you know, 25 grand in some of these cases. And he owed eBay a lot of money, I might add. So, you know, the other thing we're looking for, obviously, since this is a white-collar crime, a financial crime, we're looking for bank records. Is he, is he doing online banking? Is he using this kind of stuff? Where can this be? So not only do we have the computers to search through, but now we have a lot of paperwork that we found at the house to search through too. That may be related. Um, so it took us about a, a good month um, to try to divide and conquer. And when you're doing a case this big, divide and conquer is difficult because not everybody on my team was involved with the case as heavily as I was. So bringing them up to speed, you know, this is what we're looking for and controlling that and coordinating that effort was difficult at best. And it took some time, but we got into it in a, you know, a few meetings 
Guy started finding things. You betcha, that's what we're after. Yep, that's what we're after. And then they were getting into it and finding it a lot easier because, you know, you just can't, if you're not the case agent, it's hard. You just can't know everything about the case. It, it doesn't work that way. All right. So a lot of times the folks who are, you know, boots on the ground or the ones who have been sitting in on those conversations in those interviews or doing the legwork prior to an examination ever being needed, they've got a lot of that sometimes maybe even in their mind where they've just seen a little something, right? They've something yeah. in the digital evidence, you know, may may jog their memory. But uh, as an examiner, you may be a, at a disadvantage in that respect if you haven't been privy to all that information prior to. So that communication between the investigator and examiner is huge. Well, and that's where our unit was pretty, was different than some other computer crimes unit because we still investigative stuff. We weren't just forensic examiners. Um, a lot of agencies set their teams up that their forensic examinators were separate from investigations. All they did was forensics. And I think that gave us an advantage is because I investigated this case and I was the lead forensic examiner. And that gave us a little bit of an example of an, of an edge. And it's not always easy to do that. Um, we still did forensic examinations for other cases from all over the police department. Heck, ultimately we ended up getting on, a, on the Electronic Crimes Task Force with the Secret Service, and we did cases for all kinds of people. But when you're, you know, you're working a case that you have, you know, this kind of knowledge about, and, you know, I can, I as the case agent can say, hey, listen, we need to look in, uh, in internet history, take a look at volume shadow copies. Oh, this is a Mac. We need to look at tarballs. Okay, we need to be looking for any uh, time machine backups, these kind of things. That makes that that translation from detective to forensic examiner so much easier, so much easier. So you find that he's owing money from several or to several places, right? And what ended up being his grand total or did you come up with one? Well, we never really got a good solid grand total, but eBay estimates that over over the time that he was active, he's into them for almost upwards of $3 million in back auction fees. Just in fees? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, that's what eBay told me. So that's on them. So, yeah, because remember every auction at 35,000 listings a day, you know, those quarters add up. And he had been doing this for years. I mean, we estimated that it could be going back at least 10 years. That is incredible. White collar crime is like that. And by, the, by the time you get somebody in a white collar crime, they've been at it a while. And the reason they're still doing it is because they, they got away with it. And, you know, violent crimes are scary. Violent crimes make the news. But it's the white collar crimes that truly victimize more people when you start breaking it down. And all this list of bad guys of, you know, that I've dealt with in my life, this case, in the list of victims... I find one of my cousins. Wow. And I'm like, I call him up. I'm like, Mike? He's like, I tell him what I'm doing. He goes, oh, man. Yeah, I sent that guy like 10 bucks for a baseball card because he collects baseball cards. I'm like, I got him, Mike. <laughs> so, and now I found that in eBay records that he, that were sent to me. And I mean, we're talking, geez, there was hundreds of thousands of victims in the end of this thing. And to this point, I don't think we know all of them. I don't think we ever could just because it had been going on for so long. So were you able to find the money? No. That's the other thing. We never found the money, and neither did the Secret Service. And, you know, we're talking about one of the federal agencies that works for the Treasury, and they've got a lot of resources, and they put their resources on it. We never found the money. To this day, I have no clue where it went. 
Um, and that's one of those things that, you know, was hard for me to accept. But when you don't have evidence, you don't have evidence. And we didn't even have a sniff, nothing of where it went. There was no electronic records. There was no banking records, nothing that we could get our hands on. So when he asked people to send him the money order or the, the actual paper check, he would just get them cashed, I'm guessing? Cashed or maybe had another side scheme going with somebody we never found out about. We don't know. Uh, but he was not, you know, because we, we went through and looked over all the financial records we could get our hands on. And the Secret Service went through all their asset. They have tons of asset tools um, that they can you know, bring to bear and search for people. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. So even our, our, our DEA reps were looking to get involved with it. And, they, and then they said, hey, the Secret Service uses the same tools as us. So we're not, they didn't find anything. We're not going to find it either. And uh, we never found the cash. That's not unlikely that you don't find cash. It is very easy to launder money. Uh, and right now it's even easier to launder money because cryptocurrency didn't exist when this case went down. It didn't exist. But now with cryptocurrency, you can launder money so fast. It's, it's, it's amazing. And... There are, but there's old school money laundering techniques to hide it with offshore accounts, um, like the Cayman Islands or Cyprus. They they don't care. We could serve a, a subpoena on a bank records, whatever. And let's face life: if you're you're banking out of Russia or you're banking out of some of these countries, they may respond, they may not. And then you got somebody who now they're using someplace that doesn't cooperate with the United States diplomatically, and they're using fake names and fake IDs and fake all this other good stuff. And there you go. You know that money disappears into the wind. And you know uh, the old the old hand was once it makes five hops, it's it's laundered. And that's that's the old rule of thumb that you know five hops it's 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 laundered, and it's going to be hell for you to try to figure out where how it got there, where it went. So all of the folks who took the time to put something on IC3 in order to give you all more information to try to hopefully find this guy. Is there a possibility, though, that if by submitting something there that you may end up getting some money back at some point? eBay tried to make them whole um, as many as they could. Uh, but it was very difficult for eBay also because some of these people were like, I'm never using, you know, they got ripped off. I'm never using eBay again. Um, so, you know, it, they, they tried to step in and make these people whole, but it was very difficult for them to do that. Uh, as far as us go on victim restitution, we had no no way of, of forcing that. And we had some victims that had gone into partnership with them that were all a, a significant chunk of change. The state has some victim compensation funds and things like that, but they're not going to get, they're not going to be made whole. That's, that's that, that didn't happen, which I'm sad about, um, but at least we got him and we stopped him. Exactly. So what happened then? Uh, did you go to trial? Did he take a plea? Well, he, he ultimately delayed the trial a bunch. It was kind of weird um, because in the, in the state of Arizona, prior to trial, you sit in county jail, not in prison. And the county jails here are not exact. They're not as nice as the prison, so to speak. So he sat a lot of time in prison before just with all kinds of different delays, back and forth, back and forth. And ultimately, he ended up accepting a plea. How, how much time did he get? <laughs> he got 18 years. 18 years. Yes, ma'am. But eligible for parole. And he got a lot of time served because of, I mean, this is the longest delay I've ever had in my career for a trial. So he got some time served for that time that he was sitting in county jail. So ultimately, he was able to get paroled after, I think, four or five years based on all the different rules at the time. But he did have a kicker on his parole that we got added in by the judge. He was not allowed to have internet access. Any internet access. Ever? Throughout his parole period. 
So he had a, he had a, 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 eight years of parole that he had to get through without any internet access. So he was not able to get through his parole that way. So did he end up going back to jail? Yes, ma'am. Uh, we found him with wireless access at his house. His, his parole officer yanked him, sent him back for a couple years. And I think he learned his lessons because the, the, the spot checks we were able to do, we didn't see anymore. So. Right. Oh, my. Wow. It was a it was a crazy case, and you know the thing about it is, white collar crime cases like this one are so hard to keep organized and managed. You know, and especially when you have you have to break it up into multiple people to assist you with the investigation, and it becomes just as complicated as some homicides might get. Um, you know, and obviously it's not the same level of investigations as a homicide, but you know the complexity makes it very very difficult to. Uh, to, to take care of. And that was the biggest challenge for me was trying to manage all of this data and keep track of all the victims and keep track of, you know, list of victims. Well, this one's out 20 grand. This one's out five grand, you know, this kind of stuff. And then for the attorneys to now take all that information and use it to back the charges that they put through. And there's, oh, then there's also the, the, the stigma that comes with white collar crime. Well, we need jail beds for murderers and rapists and armed robberies and drug dealers and this kind of stuff. So that always comes into play in sentencing. And, you know, as, as crazy as this case was, I was very surprised that we got what we got. Well, that's great work by the investigative team and, and the examiners to be able to put all of that data together and, and to be able to package it up just within a month. I mean, that, that had to take a lot of, of effort and coordination with all of you. Yeah, and, and between the feds and, and everything else, we developed really good re working relationships with the Secret Service in this case. Um, we developed really good working relationships with eBay, which came in another case that I did with them, came to fruition on that side of it. It was, again, it was eBay, the Secret Service, and us. And, um, you know, so that's the thing that happens when you get these complex investigations. It leads to a better process for future investigations. And, you know, when we started in on this case, there wasn't a whole lot of computer crimes being prosecuted because a lot of guys didn't understand computers. You know, the way I got assigned to the computer crimes unit was the lieutenant came in and said, hey, you know computers, you're on this new unit. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, and the next thing I know, I'm getting sent to all this forensic training. And so as we evolved, we wanted to be able to look and still investigate cases like this and not just become forensic examiners because there was so much of this stuff, and there still is. God, it's probably even exponential now with, uh, you know, with cryptocurrency being king and all this other stuff. So, you know, when I re after I retired, I was like, I didn't have to put up a cryptocurrency, thank God, you know. But it it really is a challenge, and you know, we got creative with tools. Uh, we had to get creative with some of our forensic tools. And uh, we had some very creative Excel spreadsheets <laughs> that we had to keep, you know, because we had all this stuff to put together. And there was a lot of time spent on this by a lot of people. And, you know, you don't, this is not something that any individual does themselves. There's no way you do a case like this by yourself. You're just going to, you're going to put yourself in a hole if you try. So the FBI still has the IC3 website, right? Yes, ma'am. They still have the IC3 website. And it's very highly uh, suggested that you make a complaint there. Now, the problem is a lot of people think that they've reported it to the FBI and the FBI is investigating it. There's so much volume here. It's just impossible for them to investigate these things. But by filing a case, you add to 
that list so they can start looking and, and collating these different characteristics of the cases and go, hey, here's a whole bunch of these and here's a commonality that, you know, that, that leads to possible suspect. And that's really the key to the IC3 system itself is getting that in there. And it was, it was crazy because we would get IC3 complaints for domestic violence. Like that's not really what IC3 is for, but people would be using it for that. And we would get all kinds of different complaints in there. But, you know, we kept track of numbers because with, with electronic crimes, internet crimes, you know, it's all about finding the patterns. You know, that's really is. It's all about finding those patterns and looking for those commonalities. And then what can I do to try to find a suspect? What evidence do I need? How do I get them identified, positively identified? Because the other thing is, who's at the end of that keyboard typing? You know, right now, you know, you have your camera on, I don't. So you don't know that it's me talking because you can't see my face. And, you know, that's a challenge in any computer digital forensic case is who's on the keyboard. That's the one thing about deniability that a suspect has. And, you know, we could come in with all this evidence that says, you know, hey, it was Kim's account. It was during the daytime when Kim doesn't work, blah, 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 all this other stuff. But unless they have that camera on while they're typing doing the crime, you don't have that visual evidence. And in some cases, that's very hard for a jury to swallow. You know, that's that, that last piece. And you know, the best you can do is try to prove that it can be nobody else but this person. This is the only person it could have been. Um, and sometimes, you know, there are some cases where we've had you know, individuals on camera when they did something stupid, but it's rare, very, very rare. And, you know, and that's where the, that's like where the match.com came in. I wanted to get a, a face so I could put a face with a name on this dude. And that, that worked, uh, you know, in this case. So that's a challenge. And, you know, that's any computer forensic examiner's number one issue is, can I put somebody at the keyboard when this crime occurred? And who is that person? Right. Keith, thank you so much for sharing this case with us. This has been a great one to talk about and appreciate you coming on here. Anytime, Kim. I you know, appreciate the opportunity. You know, I think the more that we get some of these stories out, um, the more it helps the forensic community. And you know what? The more it helps the public understand what it is, because this is this is like CSI stuff. You know, they think we've got, you know, dark offices with big glass screens. We touch this, we touch that, and all this magic happens. And you know what? It's a lot of hard work. You know that because you, you work in the business and you know, your, your teams help us immensely. So anytime. Well, that does it for today. Thanks so much to Keith for coming on to talk about this case. Thanks to the folks writing their stories to DFIRL at MagnetForensics.com. Keep them coming. We're so excited to share with you some of these cases on the podcast soon. Digital Forensics in Real Life is a production of Magnet Forensics. This episode was mixed and edited by Phil Froklage with production help from Lindsay Ward. Our original theme music is by Rick Andrade. I'm your host, Kim Bradley. Thanks for listening.